Episode 82, Putting a Finger on What Really Matters. Today, I speak with Bill Heisel from IHME, the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know, talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Scenario. Data point to cardiovascular conditions as a leading cause of death. But as Bill Heisel says during our conversation today, a patient only dies once. So maybe the patient went into the hospital for a heart valve replacement and wound up with kidney failure and eventually died. The death would be attributed to cardiovascular causes and the kidney failure aspect may get lost. But what if it turned out that kidney failure was a common denominator of morbidity or mortality across multiple disease states? And what if said morbidity and mortality rates could be improved overall by focusing on improving the treatment of kidney disease? Bill Heisel from IHME, that is the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation, unravels this population health challenge and more today on the program. My name is Stacy Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Welcome to Relentless Health Value, Bill. Thank you so much for having me. You are the Director of Global Engagement at the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation. That is a mouthful. Could you explain what exactly you do over there? Sure. Well, I oversee all of the outreach functions for the Institute. We are about 250 people now in Seattle. We've grown from a very small staff back in 2007 to an internationally focused group that in addition engages with 1,500 co-investigators in 115 countries around the world. And what we're trying to do here is improve health through better health evidence by looking at levels and trends around the world, by looking for areas where there's been improvement, by looking at areas where there's been stagnation and trying to advise decision makers, whether it's private sector or public sector, and what they can do to reduce health disparities, to lengthen lifespans, and to make sure that everyone's living a long life in full health. Maybe you could give an example. I understand that you've done some work for a larger insurer in the United States. Let's put theory into practice. How did you achieve that mission that you just expressed for this particular customer? Insurers have been particularly interested in our work because we have now about 1.6 billion results at the very local level and at the international level on every major disease and risk factor and injury that you can think of and many, many minor diseases. You know, we study things that people have never heard of and then, you know, the major causes of poor health that you would think of, the cancers, the cardiovascular diseases, diabetes, endocrine disorders. And so insurers have come to us in the past and the one you're referring to came to say, can you apply that same statistical rigor to just our population of people who are in our networks, what are you seeing there? And so what we do in that, when we get that question is, we take that data the same way we would taking data from a government in Sub-Saharan Africa, and we analyze all the levels and trends going back in time as far as the data will allow us, fill in gaps the same way we do when we're doing an international analysis, and then provide some thinking on what we're seeing, where is there a particularly positive 
trend that stands out in contrast to the surrounding communities where something that's troubling, where it seems like a lot of the money is being spent on a disease or area which shouldn't require as much effort or investment? Where are they not making any progress despite what would seem like available interventions or drugs or devices that should have been showing some improvement in this area? Let me just interject. When you say areas of challenge or opportunity, effectively what you're looking for is you're kind of doing a cost-benefit analysis. Like for example, with the diabetes population, how much money is being spent relative to benchmark per patient? And then given that amount of money, how much is A1C lowering across the board? Is that kind of the idea? Could you give a kind of a specific example? It's actually more of a step back from that in that oftentimes the companies are very much attuned to the cost benefit, but they're not actually thinking about their populations moving forward as a cohort, whether they are improving or getting worse in a range of health areas. So I'll give you an example. So if in a particular state, what we see is improving mortality related to cardiovascular disease, which is you know, a very positive trend that we're seeing, especially in high-income countries, that we're doing a better job driving down mortality related to cardiovascular, even though it remains one of the top contributors to early death and contributors to illness, making major progress there. So if we know that at the global level, and we know that at the U.S. level, but we're not seeing that happen in an insurer's population, then what's going wrong there. And that's a that's a red flag. That's an obvious one because it's such a big group of people who are affected by those conditions. But then you can go down and drill down even deeper and say, in an age group where we expect to see this happening with, let's say, cervical cancer, or let's say diseases related to obesity or whatever the case may be. And how do we compare that to the reference group, the community outside, the nation as a whole, the state, the county. And that's where you know a lot of people come to us because we're providing that objective view. It's not their own number crunchers internally telling them what the business decision should be. It's us telling them, here's what we see going on in the health of your population. Say that you would figure that out for an insurance company, that despite a upward trend in an ability to intervene and improve outcomes in a particular cardiovascular condition, the one that you mentioned, for their particular patient population, it was the converse. What are typically, do you get involved in in the why of it? What have you seen be the reason for that? Just an, an anecdotal example. Sure. So one of the things that we're doing here is we're looking closely at the avertable burden. When we talk about a burden of disease at IHME, what we're talking about is everything that contributes to early death and to illness, because our feeling is it's great to extend lifespans. But if you're just extending lifespans and people are spending more time being sick, then you really haven't added anything. So what we want to do is we want to make sure that people can live really long lives in full health. We think everybody deserves to live the same life expectancy as women in Japan. Basically, women in Japan live the longest lives in the world right now. But we know that that's not the case. We know that there are people in North Dakota who live much shorter life lifespans. We know there are people in Niger who live much shorter lifespans. And so our thinking is... What is taking away, what is contributing the most to those years of additional life in the positive and what is uh, taking away those years of additional life in the negative? And we look at things, 
in the major risk factors that you might think of, like smoking, like all the components of diet, physical activity, the relationship between obesity and a range of diseases. We talk about those things and then say, okay, what is actually avertable here? What can you do to make recommendations? How much will you really move the needle? Because a lot of things get tied up in sloganeering and definitely in silver bullet solutions, you know, to believe the health magazines that you see every day at the grocery store. We think there's real science behind what's avertable and there is real guidance to offer if you can break the burden of disease down that way. What's the definition of avertable? I've never heard that term before. The thought is what actually is a modifiable risk that then you could change the course of. You could change the course of this health trend by avoiding this piece of the burden. So for example, the simplest one that would take away a massive amount of premature death and illness in the US is to continue to drive down smoking rates. So by doing that, you're averting a huge portion of the cardiovascular and cancer burden in the U.S. Let me ask you this. I have heard that one of the reasons why some of the stopping cessation programs and pharmaceutical solutions have not been covered in the past is because the impact of smoking tends to not rear its ugly head until after a patient has reached the age of 65 and therefore is not a commercial insurer's problem anymore. In other words, it doesn't behoove a commercial insurer to pay for it because by the time the problem kicks in, they are off the commercial insurer's books and on to, to Medicare. What do you think about that, Bill? Well, you know, we've had that, not just a smoking question, but similar questions like that uh, come up before. But is there a business decision being made here that's not necessarily in line with a a purely health-minded decision? I guess I would say our experience with insurers and with the private sector has not borne that out. The types of questions they're asking us are very much in line with the research that we're trying to do. They want to answer the same questions that we want to answer. What is contributing to shortening people's lives and to causing people to live with more illness? We're a small window into that universe, but we haven't seen that here yet. Say that you discover that there's a trend line that lots of people smoke in an insurer's demographic, more than average. Would your expectation be that the insurer starts to support and promote smoking cessation programs? Or like, what do they do with this information? They've discovered that lots of their patient population smokes. Like, what happens then? Well, there's a whole range of things that can happen. And it's partly the patient population. It's also about the power that these companies have in the marketplace of ideas. So you think about what has driven some of the big change in countries on policy. It isn't just about elected legislators getting together and coming up with good ideas. It's very much about what is the demand from big employers? What is the demand from big insurers? What is, you think about what has driven the health reforms we've seen in the U.S. to date. Think about the influence that the automakers have had and big companies have had saying something has to happen here to help us deal with healthcare costs. And so we feel very much that the, the decision makers that we're trying to influence with the best data possible are people on both in the private and the public sector who can help push forward things that are actually going to make a measurable difference in people's lives. To be clear on one thing, we don't propose a cessation program for combating smoking, or we don't propose 
this particular diet to reduce obesity. Our feeling is that we're providing the guidance on levels and trends in health, on what is contributing to the most to making people sick and die young. And we remain agnostic on the specific interventions. We can tell you which interventions we've seen be particularly effective, but there's a whole separate science around interventions and effectiveness of delivery. And we think that that should start the discussion then to help people make that next step. I was listening to a podcast about a recent article in the New England Journal of Medicine just the other day. And the net of it was that interestingly, mortality amongst middle-aged white Americans was rising. And they attributed that to opioid addiction, various drug overdoses, and actually stagnation of cardiovascular outcomes. I thought that was very interesting. We've seen some of the same coverage. We actually do a similar analysis at the county level to what the Times did themselves. The difference with a lot of these efforts that have been going on to quantify what's happening in the U.S. population, I would say to what we do is we start with the premise that everyone can only die once. And why I say that is <laughs> now, because... Can you prove that? <laughs> well, because people have tended in the past to use this assessment of deaths from, let's say, cardiovascular disease over here and this assessment of deaths from lung cancer over here. And when you add up all the deaths from the different interest groups, it has in the past added up to more than the total number of people who die every year. So we start with what we call a total mortality envelope globally. And then nested within that, when you go down to the country level and you go down to the county level, go down to the zip code level, we say that all the deaths have to fit into that universe of the number of people who died. It's one of the things that brings real value to the work is because we're not double counting. We are telling you this is how many people have died and this is what they died from, or this is how many people are sick and this is what they were sick with. And then there's a whole risk factor attribution that happens that's layered on top of that. And that's hard work. I mean, as you can imagine, I mean, there are a ton of data out there and people probably feel like they're inundated with data, but the data are very messy. And in some cases, they're non-existent. I mean, for some causes and risk factors, you can go a decade in a country and not have a true measurement of that cause or risk factor. And so we have to statistically figure out ways to fill in those gaps. And we have to figure out ways to make sure the data we're getting are not biasing us in one direction or the other. I'll give you an example. In Afghanistan, we've gathered a a ton of really interesting data. And you look at the trends, what the trend line would tell you for mortality in certain cases would be pretty low if you didn't pay attention to the fact that where the surveys were done to develop that data were in the safest parts of the country. So you have to adjust for that. You have to know that it's a, it's a country that's been in turmoil. It's a country that obviously has very high mortality. You cannot just take the safe areas and go with that as the gospel, even though there's a lot of rich data there. You don't ignore it, but you have to adjust for it. I'm trying to understand what you're saying, circling back to your comments about how you can only die once, which is interesting to think about. And I have never thought about it before. So thanks for that. Because people, I'm sure, often die from a comorbidity of factors. So say someone dies and they have heart failure and they have diabetes and they have COPD. Do we get like a 33% death attributed to each one of those 
factors or are you doing a lot of mathlete math to attribute really what killed them? We're doing, I guess your term is a good one. We're doing the mathlete math plus <laughs> to attribute what killed them and also what made them sick. So we do factor in comorbidities into our analysis. We're very much interested in that, especially when it comes to the years lived with disability, where we talk about how many years of poor health can we attribute to different factors. It's a super important question for people in governments, for people in the private sector to know that and understand. I mean, just to give you another concrete example. So we were just down in Mexico last month and we met with the Secretary of Health for the state of Morelos because we have this great collaboration with the government of Mexico right now and the National Institute of Public Health. We are diving down into the very subnational level to help them understand what the levels and trends are. So in the state of Morelos, we were able to say, because we have this method of saying, here's the total mortality envelope and here's the mix of people who are dying from different diseases. We showed them that they had a very big problem with chronic kidney disease that they were somewhat aware of but did not have any program to try to address because they didn't realize how much it stood out both within the country and within the globe. Mexico in general has had an emerging problem with chronic kidney disease that they've yet to address at the national level but Morelos was particularly bad in getting worse. So it was a great way to show Here's the results of these findings. And then now they can take the next step. So what they're going to do is they're, they're now right in the planning stages of saying, what are the suite of things that we need to bring into our policy and program planning to address this emerging CKD problem? I could see how maybe something like that would get buried if kidney disease is often considered part of something else or is caused by something else, that if you look at the data, you would see that somebody had a heart valve replacement and they wound up getting kidney disease because of that. But if you asked what their condition is or what they're sick from or what they died from, probably what's going to get written down is cardiovascular issue. So maybe some of these things like kidney disease kind of fall to the wayside and get missed. Would that be a good summary? Or I think that's exactly right. I mean, we've seen this with HIV, for example. So HIV plays a role in a number of different conditions and a number of different causes of death. And if you're not paying attention to that interaction, if you don't understand the dynamic relationships between different diseases and causes, and if you don't understand that certain diseases aren't showing up in the official statistics, then you're going to miss trends. So HIV for years has been something that has not shown up on death certificates. And so it is very much undercounted in places like Russia. The official statistics would show you that there's almost nobody dying of HIV in Russia. And we just know that that's not the case. And it's, so it's actually been coded as something else. And so we have to adjust for that. In South Africa, if you look at just the official statistics again, you see quite a, a lot of noise of data. It'd be really hard for you if you just looked at the data points that are coming out of the official statistics to understand what is the child death trend in South Africa. Our approach is to try to track the data and develop models that will do a good job of kind of making a coherent um, trend line out of the data, then you have to really understand prevalence data for HIV, which has a huge influence on child deaths. And that then gives you a pathway, one of the pathways into coming up with a coherent trend. 
Does this play into one of the things that we were talking about in an earlier conversation, which you had mentioned kind of the, I don't know, vagaries of estimations and people's view of estimations might not necessarily be entirely on point? Yeah, I think that there's. it's interesting when you talk to different audiences how some people very much understand that most of the numbers they see out there are estimates and others do not. I think there's still a sense in the health world that somehow a government agent is walking around and counting every person, literally counting every person who is sick with diabetes or has died from diabetes and therefore we know with absolute certainty that that number when in fact it's more like what you get with the employment statistics the reason the employment statistics are adjusted and why you'll have a report that comes out and then another report that corrects the earlier report is because it's just, it's a statistical exercise it's an estimation process and that's more along the lines of what we're doing in health i think we're bringing a rigor and a constant updating to the numbers in a way that is new and so it's been interesting to see how some people don't understand that the estimates that you're seeing in every other sphere are the same thing that you're now seeing in health. You'd mentioned your reference data a number of times. Where does this reference data come from? It's a wide range. You know, we start with what you might think is the most basic thing, with is birth and death certificates. And in a country like the U.S., you have very rich data in that regard. There are all kinds of things that are not going to show up in a birth or death certificate, and that's where you have to rely on things like comprehensive surveys or censuses, hospital records, police records, uh, something we call verbal autopsy, which is a technique by which people go door to door and they ask about the signs and symptoms that led to a person's death in the home. This is a whole range of things that we gather around the world to then take as our base data and then do the analysis on to come up with these very rigorous estimates. I mean, the last you know phase of that is that we've been trying to democratize all these findings because if you're just producing you know evidence-based coherent numbers and sticking them in reports, it can end up on someone's shelf. But we had one of our research fellows a few years ago do a prototype of a data visualization, mainly because he was sick of making the same charts and graphs over and over and printing them out. So he came up with a dynamic data visualization and showed it to us. And that became the, the catalyst for our own data visualization program here. So we spent a lot of time also thinking about how do we show this data to the world? How do we make it easy for people to download? Everything that we produce is freely available on our website, healthdata.org. And we think that that fourth step of delivering the information to people who need it in a low cost and engaging ways. It's just as important as the rigor that we put around the statistics. I can go to healthdata.org and I can do some queries and download how many people have died of cardiovascular disease in a state or a geography, some things like that. Yeah, exactly. Interesting. Now that I have you on the line, Bill, give me a revelation, you know, a forecast. What do you think is going to be a growing concern in the United States that people should be paying attention to based on the work that you've done? I think that one thing that people haven't recognized enough about the United States, because we tend to get into this debate about whether we have the best healthcare system in the world or whether our healthcare is not reaching enough people, and we forget that. The U.S. does indeed have some amazing health innovation. And what we talk about sometimes here is 
the U.S. is an incredible place to be if you have a very complicated illness and if you have if you have a significant amount of resources to put toward it. What it's becoming, though, is a place where, unlike much of the world, we are seeing these very big gaps in life expectancy and very big gaps in health outcomes. So while you have some of the poorest countries in the world, places like Sub-Saharan Africa, places in Southeast Asia, throughout Latin America, that have caught up and are, are catching up with much of the high income countries in terms of life expectancy and some of these health outcomes. In the US, you see this diverging pattern where you have total stagnation on some of these health outcomes and total stagnation on life expectancy in some parts of the US. And it's very troubling. It's particularly troubling because we're seeing it a, a, a pattern with women, which tend to be the half of the population that has the longest life expectancies and have tended to be the half of the population that has some of the best health outcomes too. And so when we see in women in the U.S., places where in counties, female life expectancy is stopping moving forward over decades or is going backwards over decades, we think that's really troubling. We don't see that ending anytime soon. We see some positive trends in certain counties, but we think it's something that hasn't really been addressed county by county or state by state the way it needs to be. A lot of those disparities in care have been studied and it has been revealed. There's some interesting research lately about how something like, depending on what you look at, 20% of outcomes is driven by clinical setting or, or by what happens clinically, especially if you're looking at chronic conditions. And the vast majority, you know, 80 percent or so has to do with the decisions that a patient is making or the circumstances that a patient lives in outside of the clinical setting, i.e. it's very hard to get good primary care when you can't figure out how to get to your PCP because you don't have a ride. Does your data include those sort of social determinants, which are not necessarily clinical, in quotes, in nature? No, exactly. That's a great point. So we do look at things like income, education, in-migration, out-migration. We are very interested in the whole range of behavioral risks and study those too. We think it's a nuanced story. We think, unfortunately, in an era where we do like the magazine cover, Silver Bullets, there's not one thing that's going to solve this. And it does seem to be very community specific. And I say that because what people tend to come back with is they say, well, isn't this an urban problem or isn't this a rural problem or isn't this a racial disparity problem? At the same time that I'm talking about some of these very negative trends in the U.S., you've seen some incredible expansions of life expectancy in urban areas, you've seen big gains in life expectancy for black Americans in particular. So there's very good things happening. And so why is it that both a rural county and a more urban county in the U.S. would both see stagnating life expectancy, see the counter trends in health outcomes in a particular disease. We think it's a combination of risk factors, a combination of the things that you're talking about, education, a combination of things like poverty and access. And we're actually conducting a deep study right now in 20 counties in particular to try to answer that question. Maybe there will be a nice set of tools that comes out of that. But for now, it does seem to be highly geographically specific. Do you think that it's possible to connect the dots between some of these social determinants and health outcomes? In other words, say that I run a program to improve transportation or I run a program to improve health literacy. 
or a disease state education. Do you think that it will ever be possible to say, okay, well, this program affected clinical outcomes by that amount? We do our own impact evaluations, and the way we like to do it is prospectively instead of retrospectively. So we're doing one right now about vaccines where we've gone into the areas where the vaccines are going to be introduced to try to measure a baseline. And then we are now trying to measure the impact as the vaccine programs are being rolled out to look at incidence and prevalence of the diseases and also to look ultimately at death rates. And so we, obviously that can be done and lots of people have done it. We think some of this data that we're providing, we would hope would be the kind of thing that people would use to measure that, not just thinking about deaths, but thinking about overall disease burden. I mean, that's one of the things that we've seen happen with, let's say, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, where they use some of this data to map out their programs and decide where they should invest and where they should continue to invest. The National Institutes of Health just recently did an analysis looking at this data and deciding that they their funding was a little out of alignment where disease burden is now and where it's been going. And so they're talking about rethinking the proportion of funding toward different areas to better align with what's really causing people to get sick and die. I know you mentioned the website earlier. Is that where you would direct people to find out more about the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation, IHM? IHME. So it's health, we made it healthdata.org to make it super easy. So no one has to remember the acronym. I'm surprised how many people do know the acronym, even even globally now. Uh, even, we've only been around since 2007, but it's nice to hear. But yeah, you can go to healthdata.org and you can find there. We have stories about our work. We have videos about our work. We have a whole program called the Rue Prize, where we actually give out $100,000 every year for people who have used health data to make a measurable impact in health. The winner this year is the Minister of Health from Rwanda, and she used data to tackle things like maternal mortality, cervical cancer, disease burden from indoor air pollution, and we take nominees from around the world. So there's a whole host of interesting things you can find on the website, and including the data visualizations, which you, know, you can spend a whole day playing with because they're such really cool and colorful toys. And then there's our Global Health Data Exchange, which is the biggest catalog in the world for health data. No one else, the reason we created this, no one else had put all of this health data sourcing information in one spot. So if you can't find the data itself there, we tell you where to go get it. Wow. Well, thanks for that, Bill. And thank you so much for being on the program today. Thank you. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far, there are over 50 at this point with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.